Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 44 of Ask the CEO with Avraham Gatayev. Today, I'd like to introduce a very special guest. He's the CEO of Toronto-based Crosslake Fiber, which is developing a fiber optic cable from Toronto to Buffalo through Lake Ontario to provide a physically diverse, lower latency route from Toronto to the United States. He's also executive chairman of Ireland-France Subsea Cable Limited, a project to connect Ireland and France via subsea fiber optic cable. Prior to that, he was CEO of Arctic Fiber, which created a master plan to build a fiber optic link from Tokyo, Japan to Alaska through the Arctic Ocean all the way to London, England. It is my pleasure to welcome Mike Cunningham. Welcome, Mike. Hi, thanks for being here. Hey, thank you so much for joining. How's your day going? Uh, it's going great. Uh, was on the road last week, so always good to come back into the office and, uh, and have a thousand emails waiting for you. <laughs> Isn't that always the case? Indeed. So this, you know, it's really exciting to hear about the projects that you're working on. And I imagine with the, the prevalence of IoT and soon to be released 5G technology, businesses like yours must be in high demand. Yeah, I think the the fiber space and the cable space in general is uh, is very much in, in in high demand, and is uh, is a hot place to be. There's lots going on in the industry, lots of uh, uh, cable being uh, being laid, and uh, it's an exciting time to be involved. Yeah, absolutely. And then you know, just going through the different projects that you're involved with. I just find that fascinating because people just take internet for granted. You turn on your computer, you turn on your phone, and information's there. But if you want to send an email from New York to China, you know, how does it get there? And you're the one that actually deals with that. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I don't think a lot of people really understand the, the plumbing of, of the internet. And uh, I, was, uh, I fielded a lot of questions in terms of why do you need subsea cables as an example. Doesn't most traffic go, uh, go via satellite? And, uh, and most people don't realize that 99% of international traffic goes via subsea cables. So it's, uh, it's definitely a, a unique place uh, to be involved with, but uh, it's definitely an exciting one and uh, it's definitely a niche within the industry that's seen uh, a, a lot of different uh, events and interesting projects happen recently. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And I like the way you worded it, the plumbing, because quite literally, that's what it is. Yeah, no, I think that's an accurate way to, to describe it, for sure. So tell us a little bit about this uh, project that you're working on connecting uh, Toronto to Buffalo. Yeah, so uh, the Cross Lake Fiber Lake Ontario project is a, a very exciting one for us, uh, and me specifically, given that I'm, I'm from Toronto. And so it's the first uh, project that I'm able to do really in, uh, in my own backyard. And so what we're really doing is, is developing a, uh, a new route uh, from, from Toronto down to Buffalo that will run through Lake Ontario. So it's a mixture of both a terrestrial route, a small terrestrial segment on the uh, Toronto side, uh, then about, uh, uh, call it a 60 kilometer uh, subsea route, and then another, um, uh, call it 65 kilometer terrestrial route to get down into uh, Buffalo itself. So that will really bring a, a new route from uh, Toronto into Buffalo from Canada to the US. It's physically diverse 
from the other cables that facilitate that same route, uh, and it's it's a shorter route. So the latency uh, between those two endpoints is is less, as well as the fact that this route within a Toronto to uh, New York City or New Jersey route uh, will uh, will facilitate a um, a segment within the shorter Toronto to to New York route. Yeah, for sure. And I imagine also we're not, because we're not going on the terrestrial route all the way, we're not going through all those other cities and picking up traffic from there. That's right. It really is designed to be a, a purely long haul cable um, without, uh, without picking up traffic, obviously, uh, through the lake where there's nothing else really to do other than to, to transit that traffic from one point to the other. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, what are some of the challenges of... Uh, putting together a project like this? Um, I mean, there, there are a number of things you have to do with any, I guess, privately developed subsea project. Uh, and from a project perspective, this really does fit into to the subsea realm. Uh, I think the, the red itself, uh, in terms of, of the commercial aspects of it and how we uh, look at the market is um, comparable to a terrestrial route that you would see anywhere else really within, within North America. But from a project development perspective, it does play into the um, into the the more uh, traditional subsea project development in that the different aspects that we have to get lined up and and work on are are very comparable to uh, other uh, subsea cable projects in that we have to uh, really design a route. Uh, we have to cost out that route to have an idea of really what the uh, the capital requirement for the project is and then we have to understand that long haul market where we don't have the ability to pick up traffic along the way really it is those two endpoints and then it's very iterative in terms of how you uh, refine your commercial offering uh, understand the market uh, put the uh, the financing together and then when you really go and execute the uh, the build uh, itself and the build um, on the terrestrial side is, is something that is relatively common. Each uh, geography has unique permitting aspects that you have to deal with. On the lake side, that's really where um, there's, there's quite a number of um, interesting things that we have to, uh, that we have to deal with. Um, you have your, your permitting and regulatory, which all have their unique flavor. And then even the engineering for a project like this is very unique in that it's in, uh, in the Great Lakes where traditionally you don't have uh, telecommunications cable builds. And there are some uh, unique engineering aspects that we have to, to overcome as a result. Yeah, I could only imagine. And in terms of, uh, let's say, just, just the funding for a project like this, I imagine that you go into the project already with some either buyers or contracts ahead of time, right? Yeah, I mean, with a lot of your uh, larger uh, subsea cable projects, your transoceanic projects, you really need to de-risk those projects uh, from a financial perspective through pre-sales uh, before you will actually deploy that capital. Uh, in instances like that where you're dealing with a, a repeated system, you have a maximum of eight fiber pairs uh, really you you only have a, a few fiber pair sales that you need to, to make in order to to get that project de-risked to the extent that you're comfortable deploying capital. On the cross lake project it, it's a lot different because it's a non-repeated system so we have a high fiber count uh, in the actual cable itself and so 
the market that we play in is is different in that we don't need just one or two uh, fiber sales in order to to uh, I guess in theory de-risk it. We need a bit more. On the other end, it, there's a lot more players in the market. Our price point is a lot lower. Um, the the number of potential customers out there is a lot greater by nature of the fact that it is a much lower price point. And so that gives, I think, uh, a nice, um, it, it puts us in a nice position whereby we have a project where we need some pre-sales, but there's also a greater ability to um, to have comfort in, in the addressable market really before we go and start deploying material capital. And that's so interesting how it's a shorter haul. Um, you need to sell more of it ahead of time, but you got more buyers. Uh, that's exactly it. I mean, we we definitely hit the traditional uh, telecommunications carriers, uh, your your OTTs, and then even into the what I would call enterprise market, uh, which is probably more heavily focused on on financial institutions, uh, which which definitely like the security uh, of of dark fiber as well as the um, the the characteristic of lower latency uh, that that they definitely uh, enjoy and, and derive some benefit from yeah so let's talk a little bit about security you know one thing uh, that I've always wondered is uh, you know those cables are out there in the lake um, can anybody just go over to them and you know mess around with them um, it'd be pretty, it'd be pretty tough to, to do that without at least us knowing. Um, I think, uh, in terms of how we've actually uh, designed and engineered, uh, the system itself, I mean, we really have taken, um, uh, a very prudent approach to design in that the entire cable is, is armored and we are targeting burial across the entire system. Uh, with HDD at the shore ends. So from a build perspective, it really is as, as secure as it comes and as safe as it comes. Um, and a lot of that work comes even before we, uh, we decide upon the route um, or we actually go and construct it in that a lot of that front-end engineering in terms of selecting the route, selecting your placement for your shore ends uh, is all part of the process of de-risking um, the actual asset itself so that we don't have any issues, um, you know, over time. Um, it, we're, we're fortunate in that Lake Ontario between Canada and the U.S. Um, developed countries, uh, no commercial fish trawling that's, that's dredging up the bottom, and the, um, the, the, the shipping lanes are very defined as well, so it allows us to um, create a heat map of, of where we actually see vessel traffic going and adjust a route so that we um, experience as little uh, time with the cable in those shipping lanes or as little distance in those uh, shipping lanes as possible. Gotcha. So in a way, it's a lot simpler than, let's say, a transatlantic cable. Um, a lot of the same concepts. Uh, I mean, we don't go to the same depth that the uh, transatlantic cables would. Uh, when you get down to the depths that they often go to, you you have very little risk from uh, fish trawling because they don't go below a certain depth typically. Um, but at uh, at the same time, uh, there are challenges that come with going uh, that deep. Um, so there, it's more of a different flavor than uh, one being um, uh, better or uh, facing. Um, they just face 
different risks, generally um, speaking. Nice. Now, were there any kinds of challenges that you were facing dealing with the two different governments, the, dealing with Canada and the United States? Um, yeah, I mean, there, I wouldn't call it a challenge. I'd just call it a, a process. Um, I think uh, what we're fortunate um, is that with Canada and the United States, they're, they're developed countries with uh, developed, honest legal systems compared to what you would find in many other parts of the world. So from that process, there is very much a, um, a, a defined um, explicit process that you need to undertake in order to get all the appropriate uh, permits and regulatory clearances and licenses and that sort of thing. It is interesting, given that we go through uh, uh, a freshwater lake, which does have nuance in terms of how you actually go and get through a regulatory process, actually. Mm, gotcha. So, Mike, who would be an ideal client for, uh, for this project? Uh, I mean, for this project, I would say other telecommunications carriers are our are, are, are most typical client. Uh, with a long-haul trans-oceanic system where it's a, uh, a repeater cable, we would typically say an internal user of bandwidth and not a reseller is our ideal uh, client. However, for this project, we are just selling really dark fiber. Um, that's, a, that's our bread and butter. And so we will sell on a really to anybody on a non-discriminatory basis. So uh, I don't know if we have an ideal customer, but I think that there are more customers that are other telcos than anyone else. Gotcha. So Mike, this is really fascinating stuff that you're working with. How did you get started in this? Um, I, I guess somewhat by accident. Uh, my, my father uh, was in the subsea business and a number of years ago, I worked for uh, a company in the Caribbean um, that was doing uh, um, they had a telecommunications license to go and uh, develop a, a subsea cable that would serve a domestic requirement that they had, but they also had a uh, voice business and a data business, which, which I was responsible for. And while I wasn't directly um, involved with the, the cable development, I I picked up uh, a lot of it because it was a product that I was having to sell. And that's really how I got into the, the subsea, I guess, cable uh, business. Um, and, and previous to that, for a number of years, uh, I was in the telecommunications business. Uh, so so I definitely had my toe in the water prior to that. Yeah, and those two businesses go hand in hand. They do, uh, they do very much. Um, I think that uh, in order to, to have a successful project, you need to be able to productize it and, and really drive that, that economic rationale. Um, so it's, it's, I think, especially as a, a private cable developer, you can't just be engineering heavy or um, design heavy. You really have to have a, a complete package in terms of your ability to, to sell the product at the end of the day and a product that has a good market fit. Uh, as well as being able to finance it. Yeah, and that's a very important part right there, the financing. Uh, absolutely. Um, now, I think over the last number of years, the, um, the market has definitely changed uh, in that there's been a, a lot of capital going to 
into the industry in terms of um, deals being done in the subsea cable space at the very least. Now, I don't think we play, we're, we're not an exact fit for your traditional subsea cable in that we do play in a terrestrial market, um, but we do have a, a material subsea build as, as part of that, uh, that project. But you've had a number of, of big projects that have been financed recently. After the dot-com boom, there was really nothing for a decade. Uh, then you had um, Hibernia Express, which was an operating company, but that was very much a very material project for, for Hibernia. Um, you had Aquacoms, uh, you've had Seaborn, uh, you've had Hawaiiki, uh, you've had uh, Quintillion. And so there's been a lot of deals that have happened where you've had a material amount of capital raised to go into these very specific uh, projects. Um, and then you had uh, Hibernia, uh, being acquired by GPT, which showed you could actually exit a project. And so I think the, the institutional understanding of subsea cables uh, has, has grown, and there is, to some extent, a herd mentality in terms of once you see a few uh, marquee names go into, the, um, into these projects, uh, it makes a lot of their competitors uh, take a look at them as well. And I think now that you have a, a track record of, of some exits, uh, it really helps grease the wheels for new investment coming into the industry. Mm. Um, Mike, what were some of the ups and downs you were dealing with uh, as you were building this business? Um, well, thankfully, on, on the Cross Lake side, it's it's still a relatively new project. So, knock on wood, we haven't had any big downs as of yet. Um, typically, subsea cables are very long duration projects in that they take many years from really um, uh, identification of the opportunity or the ideation of, of, of really the concept all the way through to going into service, I'll say. I mean, those are typically, especially in very large projects, multi-year, over five-year uh, projects, cradle, cradle to grave. And so uh, cross-lake fiber, um, I think the concept has been there for, for over a decade. And last summer, we, um, I think, conceptualized the, uh, the route and the project and then looked at uh, the feasibility of it, which included from both the market side as well as understanding the cost to, to build it. And I think um, we, we were obviously very excited about it because we, we were getting great feedback from the market. Uh, thankfully, we are in a good position to go and, and cost it, just given the activity that we have uh, in, the, in the space so that we were able to go and, um, I think, get very good um, understanding of what it would take to, to actually build it. And then we were comfortable enough to, to go and uh, really formalize the project and start, uh, start developing it, which a lot of your long lead items uh, include the engineering and then the permitting based off of that. Um, prior to ITW this year, we uh, announced the project publicly uh, and uh, had, had created the product itself, uh, a dark fiber pair, and um, have taken that to market. And the response has been very good. So uh, to date, we haven't had uh, any of the downs. Uh, we will, as every project does uh, as we go along, but um, for, for Cross Lake, the Lake Ontario project itself, uh, very, uh, very excited about so far. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. Very exciting. Um, 
Mike, what keeps you motivated every day? Um, that, that's a good question. Uh, I think um, it, it's the excitement of going and bringing uh, these projects through to fruition. They are multi-year projects, uh, and even from a personal standpoint, you're very heavily uh, invested in them, in that you spend years of your life working to get these projects up off the ground. And after many years, there are many projects that just can't get off the ground. And so uh, from, from my perspective, I think it's just the, um, uh, the drive to, to create something um, uh, and to develop something tangible that can become a, a, a good business or even just a good asset in other instances where it's maybe not a good platform for business. But in and of itself, the, the project or the cable is a, um, uh, a, a good asset. Let me put it that way. Yeah, I, I could imagine, uh, you know, like you said, this is a multi-year project, uh, you know, dealing with different governments and organizations. So it must be a really good feeling to watch it take a life of its own. It is. It, it absolutely is. And there's a lot of different milestones that you hit throughout the development of, of a project, um, really from getting customers signed up to, uh, to beginning a marine survey, to beginning of the cable manufactured, to the installation of the cable, to, to turning it on. And those are very exciting milestones, each of them, because it shows progress and it's, it's what's tangible about uh, developing a cable. And so I think that um, it's, it's, uh, it's exciting to see. It's, it's, it's seeing your work actually come to fruition. Yeah. So Mike, having been uh, involved with uh, building several businesses, so you know there's a statistic that a uh, good chunk of uh, businesses fail during the first year in business, um, and then the next year there's uh, another percentage. Where do you think entrepreneurs may be going wrong? Um, I mean, generally speaking, uh, I think, I think it's good that people don't have the fear of failure um, because I think great things can come, come out of that. Uh, and um, I, I guess if I apply that, where, where are people going wrong due to failure and I apply it to, to the telecommunications business, I think it comes down to um, really market fit at the end of the day. And if the product that you're creating or the route that you're creating or the, um, service that you're offering at the end of the day is a good fit for the market and the market is, uh, is, is big enough, then I think that's a recipe for success. But you really have to, to go and have a, a good sense for whether that market is big enough. And especially in the telecommunications business uh, or in the data business, there's perpetual uh, price deflation. And uh, that's something you, you need to, to really take into account. I know for every project that I've done and each new one, you're faced with different challenges, but we have been able to really learn from our mistakes in the past. Thankfully, those haven't been fatal. Um, but in many instances, there, there could be fatal things. So I think it's a, a very um, uh, iterative process and experience has definitely uh, helped keep us away from failure. Um, but uh, if you're trying something new, I think that's great. Uh, and if it ends in failure, then at least next time around, you know some of those um, mistakes to avoid. And you probably learn more from your failures than you, you do from your success. 
Yeah, and I love that attitude because that's really the only way to do it. I mean, you you can't be held back by fears of some of the unknown. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think in um, and it comes down to the comfort of of the capital in the uh, fiber or subsea business in that we do have to de-risk the projects to a certain point, or you do need to have a greater amount of comfort. Uh, in that project than you did during the dot-com booms, as an example, where uh, there was a lot more free-flowing capital uh, going into these projects. They weren't as proved out. They weren't as de-risked. Um, and, and so I think the, um, the opportunity for failure has probably gotten a, a bit less after a project develops past a certain point. Um, at the very beginning stage, when you're still at the early stage of development, trying to, to get all the different pieces together, there's still very much the opportunity to fail. And I think many projects will fail just because they're, they're very tough uh, to get off the ground. But I think um, once you get past a certain point, uh, the projects are really set up for success. Um, and it's just a question to some extent of, of degrees or just executing that construction simply because you've you had to go in order to attract that capital, you had to, to de-risk the project uh, to a much greater extent than you have previously had to. And that's a, a great point that could be transferred onto many different kinds of businesses, which is de-risking, you know, make sure you have enough capital and you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And I think, um, I think again, we've learned uh, the way we've structured uh, the, the company, uh, how we've marketed the um, the deal as well when, in terms of when we're raising capital. I think we've done so in a way that really provides us with a, uh, a good platform and our ability to execute is much greater than under some other uh, structures which are more constraining. I think it lends itself to uh, giving comfort to your your senior equity as well as having a uh, a fully funded project. One of the uh, concerns that many of the uh, turnkey subsea vendors have is, is this project fully funded? Even if you have your ec equity component, what about the, the rest of uh, the capital you need to, to build it if you have a properly levered balance sheet? And so I think your ability to execute is somewhat hindered if, if you have some of those potential gaps in funding. And there are certain milestones that you have to hit in terms of the development of a project in order to, um, to, to actually receive funding from uh, different, different sources of capital. As an example, uh, for some of your senior debt funding, you have to have, um, in certain instances, your permits in place. Well, sometimes your permits in place, sometimes to get those permits, you've had to advance the project so far that you needed that capital on the debt side. And so it's really about how you bridge that gap, I think, at the end of the day. And I think that we've learned that uh, over the years and being able to uh, approach uh, the financial markets in such a way to um, to address that challenge uh, without it being punitive to the project. And that really helps us execute uh, the project in, in a much, much easier, simpler way um, because we can show payment assurance to a vendor. We can experience a, a lower cost of capital by nature of the fact that we don't actually need to commit or draw down on uh, debt funding, as an example, until after we've really um, mitigated a lot of the execution risk of construction. 
Right. Uh, Mike, where do you see yourself taking this business, say, in five years from now? Uh, so, so Cross Lake itself, the Lake Ontario project is a, uh, as far as the subsea project is concerned, at least a, a smaller project. Um, and I mean, it's still, still big in, in dollar terms. It's still a, uh, an infrastructure-based project with a lot of construction, but compared to your transoceanic cables, as an example, it's a smaller project. But we're definitely looking at this as being a platform. There are a number of other uh, routes that we are looking at that are comparable in size to the Lake Ontario project uh, in terms of um, being uh, looking at specific niches in the market. Uh, and so we're, we're developing those now, proving out the business case before we um, really announce them. And I think that's just part of the process of ensuring that we're comfortable with moving ahead on a project. Um, you know, we take a look at the market, we understand the costing and under ensuring that, uh, that, that the capital behind us is comfortable with that as well. Um, and once we have kind of checked those boxes, then we'll publicly announce the project um, and, and move forward. And so there's a couple other uh, specific projects that are comparable, I guess, in size to what we're doing on Lake Ontario uh, that we'll do underneath the uh, Lake or the Cross Lake Fiber Banner. That's great, and I'm looking forward to uh, hearing it. Yeah, well, I'm I'm looking forward to to getting to a point where we can go and announce those. Awesome, Mike. Real tough question. What do you like doing for fun? Uh, what do I like doing for fun? Well, unfortunately, there's not a, a lot of time for that these days. Thankfully, I, I really enjoy what, uh, what I do, uh, do here for work. But, um, you know, I, I really enjoy spending time with the family and, uh, and my kids, uh, first, and, first and foremost. And, and they're, they're definitely at the age where that, uh, uh, that's where a lot of my free time goes. Uh, and I guess other than that, uh, keeping, keeping active as best I can playing, uh, playing hockey or baseball. Nice. So Mike, the area that you're involved with is such a fascinating industry. Uh, we've had some questions come in from the audience. Um, so sure. I'd like to present you with a couple of questions. First question is from Carl Hornet. He's a QA tester at Spotify in New York City. Okay. So Carl asks, I would be mostly interested in hearing your thoughts on foreign intelligence intercepting information in fiber optic cables. Okay. Um, you know, I think that uh, obviously uh, security is, is a, um, uh, a very important part of our business in that your, your signals intelligence or uh, your your telecommunications are such an important part of, I guess, your your internet infrastructure that they're a target for for many people and, and foreign operators who would want to, to to eavesdrop and listen in. And I think um, that's going to continue to be the case. I think that dark fiber, on um, which is what uh, Crosslink's really offering, offers probably the most um, secure form of communication right now because you can add on all your other. Uh, security layers on top of that, but you have a, a physically um, separate, uh, you know, piece of glass going from one end to the other. I mean, if anyone tries to really break that, then there's, there's the opportunity to, um, to really uh, see that, that something has happened. So I think, um, 
I think from a, a security standpoint, and I think that this is going to be seen going forward that uh, especially in the financial industry, uh, different banks, and as security uh, becomes more of a concern for more companies, I think you're going to get companies bring their traffic off the internet onto uh, their own fiber network. And um, I think that provides a lot of additional security compared to uh, potentially um, uh, yet other methods of um, securing your, your data from point to point, just because the number of opportunities for intercept are, are much, much less. Um, in terms of specifically talking about foreign intelligence operators, um, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to, to talk to about that simply because um, I really deal at the, the layer one, maybe layer two, really the construction layer, so the physical uh, integrity and security of, of the system. Um, I think uh, your, your opportunities for intercept uh, are, are, are further down in terms of your, your, your different layers, two, three, four, whatever, uh, or, or um, at the application layer, I guess. Yeah, but uh, you know, like you said, the physical layer, it'll be very difficult for somebody to just covertly attach themselves because they got to break something. That's exactly it. It's not something that you can do necessarily um, through through a computer interface. You have to you have to go out there and physically do something, and there's a permanent record of that, or you can see it. So I think the the opportunity to do that uh, on on the cross lake system is 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 pretty pretty low. And at the same time, I think just given where we're located in the world, it is a um, there's there's a much less risk of that sort of security risk uh, actually taking place on a, on a cable like this, as opposed to one that is in um, a different part of the world. You know, they're, they're in the subsea business, you all hear stories about these instances, such as in Egypt, where you have people kind of coming out and, and cutting the cable and, and things like that. So I think we're in a pretty good part of the world uh, in terms of being concerned about the security of the, the system. And, and like you said, it, it's alarmed, right? I mean, somebody can't just come over and start drilling holes into it. <laughs> no, I mean, if, if we ever have a, a cable cut or anything like that, uh, or if someone impacts the, uh, the, the fiber itself, um, there will be alarms going all over the place. And that's, that's the day I, I, always, uh, I always worry about because with, uh, with any uh, fiber infrastructure over over decades there's going to be uh, there's going to be breaks and uh, that's that's for from my perspective the thing I worry about the most just because it's uh, it's a race to get it fixed but certainly uh, both uh, uh, the company as well as all of our customers in that instance will know it uh, instantly and uh, and be rushing to, to, to get it uh, to get it fixed great. Our next question is from Ken Heron. He's the Chief Marketing Officer for Intelligent IoT Messaging Company, Unified Inbox. So Ken says, hi Mike. It seems almost daily now we're reading announcements about carriers and service providers increasing their capacities for the increased traffic coming from smart devices. My question for you is, do you see this new connectivity be, being on our existing networks or on special purpose-built networks just for IoT? I, I think that it'll all be on, on one network at the end of the day. I think that your development of network infrastructure will, um, will be developed going forward in such a way that lends itself 
uh, to much greater extent to serving IoT. So your different endpoints might be different. It might be wireless. Um, it might be physically wired up. But I think in terms of your your underlying, I'll use the, the term again, plumbing, uh, it, it'll all come back onto a, a fiber backbone. I think when you have very small bandwidth requirements, it lends itself to wireless, at least at the front end. But I think when you take it back from there, it will be uh, an instance where um, uh, it's using all the same fiber infrastructure. I know that that 5G, as an example, is driving some of those um, changes in design in terms of how you design a fiber network, uh, even using uh, different iterations of, of GPON uh, in the future really allows for potentially the maximization of the number of endpoints that you can get to without having to lay new incremental backbone infrastructure. And then the, the capacity that you can put over these cables continues to go up very, very markedly. There will come a time where you reach uh, some, some sort of limit, but at least for now, I think the, the advancement in your, your optical equipment is, um, is quite striking in that we're looking at uh, being able to put more capacity onto a, uh, a piece of fiber than you ever had before. And, and it's, it's a lot. I mean, I'm looking at in specific instances and in specific builds, the ability to put on greater than 60 terabits per fiber pair. Um, there will be fiber pairs in our cable that are capable um, with certain optical equipment to do just that. And so I think that um, that really increases the amount of uh, the amount of design capacity of, of each cable, which lends itself to never being the choke point for anything IoT. So I think it will always be that, I'll call it last mile, but really to that IoT device that will likely be the choke point. And I think um, as, as fiber networks are continually built, they'll provide for more opportunity to come onto that network. I mean, the fiber operators are incentivized to do exactly that. And in that instance, um, it, it lends itself to, uh, to, to better commercializing from the fiber developer's perspective, uh, the IoT opportunity, uh, at least from a, a backhaul perspective. And just curious, what is the capacity of the cross-lake fiber? So we're providing uh, dark fiber. So it's really up to each, uh, each procurer or each customer to decide what they want to do or how they want to light it. Um, and so it's, it, it's up to them. In terms of the capacity of the cable itself, on the wet plant side, uh, right now we're we're still finalizing it, but we're looking at 144 fiber pair. Wow, that's pretty impressive. You know what? If for for a subsea uh, cable, uh, it it's it it is relatively uh, a relatively high fiber count. Um, for a terrestrial fiber, it's it's nothing special. Um, but there, there's another um, cable that has recently actually just been laid in Hong Kong to Kowloon, I believe, by a company called Superloop, and I think that had something like 3,000 strands of fiber in it, uh, which is uh, a very, very unique cable and build. Um, so that was an exciting project to see. So we are, are, are even at 144, we're, we're pretty high in terms of, uh, of fiber, but uh, there are other 
other projects out there that are doing some some interesting things as well. I think one of the, the reasons why there's a trade-off uh, to putting in additional fiber, even though there's the technical ability to do it, is the time it takes to repair uh, the cable, if you have a cable cut, um, it is directly impacted by the number of fiber you have in there. And so that is, is why there will definitely be a limit in terms of what we want to put through there compared to what we could, in theory, uh, put in the cable. That makes sense, because uh, you could always put a second cable in Lake Ontario, but it's a lot harder to put a second cable across uh, the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and I think in both instances, the decision to do so is, is more driven by by the opportunity in the market than anything else. Uh, but it is, um, uh, if, if you're going across the Pacific and you only have eight fiber pairs, it'll, it'll be a... Um, the repair itself will be quicker. Whether it takes uh, more time to get a ship there or not is a, is a separate question. <laughs> Just curious, physically, how how big are those? How wide are those cables? Uh, they're they're pretty small physically. Uh, if you look at the diameter of a golf ball, as an example, um, that's a pretty good pretty good size for a fully double armored cable. Oh, wow. I was imagining, you know, six feet wide, 12 feet wide. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, if there, there are larger cables that, uh, that are power cables that have fiber in them as well, um, where you'll get up to much, much larger diameters. But for just a, uh, a telecommunications uh, fiber optic cable, they're, they're, they're pretty small and, and non-impactful in terms of their, uh, their length. Yeah, and in terms of the environment as well. Absolutely. I mean, they're they're very benign in nature. If you cut it, you're spilling light. You're not spilling uh, oil, oil and gas, and the things that are, are are really impactful to the environment. So, generally speaking, they're they're very um, uh, low impact. And especially on our build uh, at the shore ends, we're looking to be uh, as uh, have as, as small a footprint, given that we are operating in a um, uh, very urbanized area. So on the, the Toronto end, uh, we're using horizontal directional drilling to actually install the cable, which provides additional protection for the cable in that we drill out, we'll punch out uh, deeper into the water, uh, which allows us to, to really mitigate the ice risk um, that we would fit, face at the shore end. And as well, in terms of the installation, that means we don't have to go and, and dig up the, the beach or dig a trench in the beach which, while not big, is still impactful, takes up time. And uh, in a place like downtown Toronto, where the beach is, is being used and has been developed, uh, it's just a much lower impact way of, of developing the, the cable. Yeah, for sure. So, so our next question is from Mark Dresner, who's the CEO of Office Evolution, a uh, shared co-working facility in Hackensack, New Jersey. So Mark says, some companies like Google are exploring providing internet via aerial-based internet, like Loon using balloons. How is this going to change internet infrastructure? Um, that's a good question. I mean, that model still has to be uh, proved out. I think you've got, I've seen from the, the big OTTs, including Google and Facebook, you've seen drones, you've seen uh, balloons, you have a new generation of um, of, of satellites or, or uh, low Earth orbiting satellites 
where it's essentially creating a, a mesh of satellites with a very low Earth orbit that allow you to um, that allow the satellites to go and communicate with each other to to essentially do a multi-point uh, transit before you you send it back to Earth. So there's there's quite a um, an interesting uh, potential options for for connectivity through anything that's really aerial or or above us. Um, I, I I haven't seen any model uh, other than satellite that. I don't think there's anything to date that, that has been proved out and works as far as providing terrestrial-based connectivity. In terms of um, uh, satellites, there's a lot of uh, capital and a lot of smart people getting into that uh, business to provide much greater capacities than currently exists on satellite technology. Um, I, I'm, I'm waiting for it eagerly, but I'm a bit cautious just because there historically has not been any new technology that's really been a, a game changer uh, on that front in terms of being able to supplant fiber. And I think um, just due to the, uh, the increased bandwidth requirements due to smartphones, 5G coming, 4K or 8K TV, uh, I think fiber will still be the primary source of, of backhaul um, with the exception of, of unique uh, or niche markets. Next question is from Jamie Kataya, CEO of uh, Jamie Scott and Associates. So Jamie says, I hear currently there's no dark fiber availability in the region of your build at all, and that you're essentially bringing that in as you roll out cable under the lake. I imagine this lack of supply weighed heavily on your business decision to build, but what does it mean to have dark fiber access to areas like Toronto and Buffalo and particularly for businesses there that have big bandwidth needs? I, I think when we looked at the market itself uh, in terms of how we could um, commercialize a service and how we productized the service, really dark fiber was the direction we were pointed at as opposed to selling with capacity. And really the reason for that and where the market opportunity comes from is the fact that there is not the ability to go and procure dark fiber today uh, from from Toronto, essentially into the United States. And I think part of that is a, uh, a legacy of foreign ownership restrictions in Canada that were only lifted a, uh, a few years ago. Um, so you didn't have that incumbent uh, base of, of carriers in there that had developed cables over the years and could sell or offer dark fiber. Uh, and I think, I think that's probably one of the greatest points. The other is that the cables that are in there now are uh, nearing two decades old. So there hasn't been a lot of new cable infrastructure. So for those reasons, there's no dark fiber that's really available to, to be acquired from, from Toronto uh, into the United States. And so that is, is why we, um, uh, like the, the market and like the opportunity and why we've also chosen to, um, to, to really sell dark fiber to, to anyone and everyone um, because there really is a, a demand for, for that product. And I think um, it's not just carriers, but also some inter enterprises as well uh, that, that really need it or see the benefit of that in terms of their own internal network architecture. Great. Mike, I know you're a busy guy and we're going to let you go in just a bit, but just before we do, 
I wanted to let everybody know how to connect with you. So you can connect with Mike on his website at www.crosslakefiber.ca and fiber is spelled F-I-B-R-E. So it's www.crosslakefiber.ca. And if you go on his website, you'll see an awesome map of the cable route going from Toronto through Lake Ontario down to Buffalo. You'll also find a phone number for Cross Lake Fiber as well as an email address and a web form to get more information. Mike, do you have any parting words of wisdom that you'd like to offer the audience? Um, not, not specifically. I guess the one, the one takeaway I could say from, um, just from, from my personal experience is just you have to have stick-to-itiveness uh, in terms of uh, how you approach these pro projects. Um, it, they're tough to do. They're long duration. And I think that, that applies to any other uh, form of entrepreneurship where uh, it can take a while to, to get things going. You just have to really stick to it. Don't listen to, to really uh, any of the naysayers and just kind of move forward and, uh, and good things can happen. Great. Mike, thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom. I really appreciated having you. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate the opportunity.